Hey, uh, welcome. Glad that you're here. As we continue in worship, um, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm Jack, one of the pastors here, so hey. And uh, we're starting a brand new series tonight and next week, just kind of a short one, looking at how do you find a satisfied life? And so we're going to talk about that, kick that around for a little bit, and kind of dive into a couple different scripture passages. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy tonight. If you have your app, you can actually open up uh, sermon notes and follow along in there. You can turn to 1 Timothy. We'll get there in a second. But can we just picture this idea, the reality that consumption is a word that describes our world? Is that true? Consumption, this idea of consuming things, is a description of our culture and our world. We consume food for sure. Americans are number one consumers of ice cream. How many of you love the ice cream? Come on. Three people. Wow. Okay. How many of you love ice cream? Okay. There you go. There you go. Okay. Uh, Do you realize Americans, this is even from a couple years ago, consume 1.58 billion (laughs) gallons um, of ice cream every single year. Americans eat pizza. How many of you like pizza? A hundred acres of pizza each day. Whoa, that's a lot of pizza. $30 billion industry, right? Each man, woman, and child in America eats an average of 46 slices. That's 23 pounds of pizza every year. Approximately 3 billion sold in a year. Americans eat burgers. How many of you like burgers? Okay, average is about three um, a person per week. That's like 50 billion burgers. How many of you like donuts? 10 billion donuts a year in the U.S. That's awesome. Okay, uh, we consume entertainment, right? Uh, how many of you have been to Disneyland before? 2017, 18.3 million people went through the turnstiles in just Disneyland itself. You like going to the movies, right? billion tickets sold last year for the movies in the United States. Anyone know the top movie of all time? Was it Titanic? I thought it was Gone with the Wind. But Titanic's on there. Listen, Titanic's overrated. Uh, Let's be honest, okay? E.T. made the top five. That's a better movie. Um, Okay. The pull toward consumption is a challenge, but it's not all bad because the reality is we are human, right? We, we are made to have to consume in order to keep living and thriving and going. We are created as a necessity to consume, but in a culture that markets and tries to push and capitalize on consumption at all cost, it can lead us to a mantra of more is always better. But is it? And that's kind of what I want us to wrestle with a little bit. Because if we're to live a satisfied life and find that life in Jesus and following after him, there's some challenges that come our way in the culture and just the current of the culture in which we swim. That there's this push toward consumption to always be the reality. You know, Americans spend $22 billion a year on personal storage, though we have three times more space than we did even 50 years ago. That's crazy when you begin to think about it. Now, I'm not saying if you have self-storage that you're wrong and all that, I'm not saying that. I'm just kind of giving us an idea here that consumption is so much a part of our culture. But having more will not always actually lead us to being happier or feeling more satisfied in life. And therein lies the tension. So how do you go about 
trying to experience more happiness, more contentment, more satisfaction, I'm going to give you two words that I think we see all throughout the Bible, and that's this. Godly generosity. Godly generosity, I think, helps us lead toward a life of more satisfaction and more contentment in what we're going to look at tonight than almost anything else can. And we see it highlighted all the way through the scriptures, that growing godly generosity within our lives allows us to deepen our discipleship with Jesus. It frees us to be a blessing to the people around us and to the world, and it helps us experience a more satisfied life. And so in these two weeks, we just want to look at a couple side benefits of pursuing and trying to grow in godly generosity. Now, that's different for every single one of us sitting here, okay? So it's the reality of saying, okay, if I want to grow in my godly generosity, then God's going to have to have individual conversations with each of you because you're each at a different place, and so am I. But this idea of growing that godly generosity has something to do with this reality of how we can experience, uh, tonight I want to look at this idea of how we can fight for more contentment in life. Instead of being on this consumption train all the time, how do we experience more contentment in life? And next week we're going to look at this idea of how do we fight against the corruption of comparison and how that can just drive us crazy within our culture. And so that's where we're going to go um, tonight and kind of look into this idea. In our world, we're kind of pushed to define ourselves by what we own or what we have. But then we encounter the teachings of Jesus where he said words like this, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve both God and money. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And if we're honest, we hear those words and go, I don't know if I like those words. Because our culture pushes something different, and, and I actually like pursuing that. And Jesus, your words are challenging. They're tough. They're not easy. In a land that's obsessed with consumption, the whisper of contentment calls to us to find satisfaction in a life that lasts because it's contented. And that is something that is countercultural to the world in which we live. The Apostle Paul writes about discovering the secret, he calls it, of contentment. That's something that we struggle with in our land. We live in a consumer-driven, debt-ridden, advertisement-saturated culture, and it will require nothing short of transformational growth in your heart and in your mind to adopt the heart and mind of Jesus and to pursue contentment. So if you're going to pursue it, know that you're going to be swimming upstream from the land in which you dwell and what's always pushed at you. So in 1 Timothy, I want to look at this, unpack this a little bit for us, and then I want to draw some simple applications that I think will help us as we try to grow godly generosity, as we try to pursue this idea of contentment. How do you try to build that in a culture that pushes us for anything but that? And so here's 1 Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy, the leader of the church in Ephesus, and he says these words, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Just the verse before that, he's talking about how people have taken godliness and tried to make money out of it, meaning they had preachers of the day who would try to say, hey, look, I'm super godly, pay me, and all this kind of stuff, and they would try to raise money and all these things. I mean, that doesn't happen in our culture at all, does it? Okay. Really thought that would be a more laugh. Um, godliness with contentment is great gain, he says, for we brought nothing into this world, and we could take nothing 
out of it. Interesting phrase. Interesting thought. Now, where's Timothy? He's in Ephesus. What's Ephesus? Ephesus is this thriving metropolis in the first century, right? It is the hub of trade and commerce and shopping. Anyone ever been to Michigan Avenue in Chicago and walked down Michigan Avenue and just store after store after store after store and all the shopping, it's like a shopping mecca, right? That's Ephesus. That's the reality of where Timothy is living. And Paul is writing to him saying, look, maybe we're not all that different, though you know, we have Uber and they didn't and they had donkeys and all that kind of stuff. But maybe we're not all that different in the cultural context of what it is. And into that prosperous climate, Paul is encouraging Timothy to pursue contentment, even with the backdrop of consumerism all around him. When Paul commented that the life of contentment, he was describing an inner fullness that was not contingent on material comforts. He's saying there's something about this contentment that can actually bring satisfaction in life, even when you don't have everything that you want or even need. He's trying to say, Timothy, there's this push that's going to have you pursue all these things. You need to push back against that. I want you to pursue contentment and experience full joy and deep peace, even when you don't have everything that you quote-unquote want. When Paul challenged Timothy, this lifestyle of contentment, he drew upon the reality of brevity. Not simply that stuff will wear out, but that you will wear out. That's the truth, right? That not only stuff will come and go, but hey, I'm going to come and go. That's the reality of the life that I'm, which I'm living. You brought nothing into this world. You will take nothing out. Now, that phrase doesn't made up just from Paul. He took that from somewhere. He took it from Job. In Job chapter 1, one of the earliest stories we see recorded in the Bible, Job loses everything. I mean, everything in a single day. And then he writes this phrase in Job 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord take away. May the name of the Lord be praised. This incredible drama that's unfolding for Job. Job's comment about entering the world and leaving with nothing became this Jewish saying that Paul is borrowing from, and he's reasoning with Timothy, and he's saying, look, Timothy, remember. You didn't bring anything with you, and you're not going to take anything with you. So so don't let this consumeristic consumption mindset dictate everything in your life. You will not live a satisfied life if you do. In fact, if you want to find satisfaction, you're going to have to pursue contentment, which will be challenging, Timothy. But that's what you need to pursue. You need to learn the difference between a want and a need. We're entering into the world with nothing. We leave with nothing. The weight of that pronouncement is intended to sober us a little bit, to measure the time and energy and effort that we spend accumulating things, to say, is that really necessary? Is more always better? Question mark. Listen, we can enjoy the gifts of life, but ultimately we are to find our life in the giver, not the gifts. And some folks let's be honest, we can too, can get so consumed in pursuing the gifts that they miss the giver and the beauty of that. The virtue of contentment is liberating. 
and it frees us from the illusion that a purchase can take away my loneliness or fill my emptiness or heal my brokenness. Paul is proclaiming, look, if I got food or clothes, that's enough. And you may hear that and go, well, that's crazy talk. I mean, that's crazy, Paul. How could you say that? As you hear those words, you may think that that's even a foreign language in the culture in which we live because we live in a consumer culture that's relentless in its advertising. And Paul's words sound very strange, maybe even foreign. Uh, Jeff Mannion writes this. He says, contentment, he gives a definition to it. Contentment is a satisfied heart, a spirit that is alive to God and to others, whether or not we have what we desire. That's where contentment resides. See, our culture screams to us, never enough. It's never enough. And so you've got to pursue more, and you've got to go chase after more. It's the culture that pursues us and says, this is the quest. The quest is always for more. It's like running a race where the finish line doesn't exist. A thousand years before Paul is having this conversation with Timothy, King Solomon writes these words in Ecclesiastes. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. The temptation to compromise spiritual movement in the chasing after money is not unique to one person or one gender or to one time period in history. The thirst for wealth is a common cause of spiritual wreckage in life. Why? Well, we know this to be true because Paul kept talking. He goes on, verse 9 and 10, he says this, But that those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This pursuit is a challenge. With those ominous words, Paul is challenging and saying, look, pursue contentment. Find satisfied life there. It's an urgent request. There's a sense of urgency to this. Timothy, the destruction and the heartache of someone who's always on a quest for more, the wreckage is just all around you. And I don't want you to be a part of that. It's clear Paul wants Timothy to recognize the spiritual devastation that occurs when we fail to harness the power of contentment or to fail to pursue it. Paul's words go on. He says, look, money is not the root of all evil. He says, look, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What he warns about here is the cravings of those who want to get rich or are eager to get money. It doesn't say it's wrong to have money, but this eagerness that drives you he describes this intense craving for wealth that can result in spiritual bankruptcy because we get sidetracked and moved away from the giver and only pursuing the gifts, and we miss everything. So as we reflect on that warning that Paul's saying, maybe we need to consider these just simple questions. How do we earn money? How can we save money? How do we spend money? How do we invest money but not fall in love with money. See, money is amoral. It doesn't have a conscience. It's how you use it. It's a tool. And you don't want to be owned by it, but you're allowed to own it. And you don't want to get that confused or mixed up. 
As we deal with this question honestly, I think we have to confess to ourselves, this is a huge challenge in our culture, isn't it? It will likely be a lifelong tension that we will have to manage and wrestle with. It is impossible to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus and simultaneously be a fully devoted seeker of accumulation. And so this is a tension we're going to have to wrestle with. Jesus assured us, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. One will inevitably win you over. One's going to win. So be careful which one you put in charge. That's what Jesus is saying. Godly generosity flows as an overflow from God's grace. See, the more I realize and lean into and and rest in the grace of Jesus, then godly generosity just becomes a natural pursuit because I didn't bring anything in here to this world and I'm not going to take anything with me. You never see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. Where's it going to go? That's the truth. And, and so all of what Paul is talking about is challenging. It's not easy to wrestle with this stuff. But Paul learned something. Remember? He learned the secret of contentment. Where did he learn it? Well, he wrote about it in prison. Philippians. Chapter 4, here's what he writes. I have learned, if you have a pen, circle that. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. Here he says it a second time. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So you've probably heard that verse but you didn't realize it was in context of contentment. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We quote that all the time. But it's in the context of contentment is where Paul is writing this. This imprisoned apostle who has gone through severe floggings, frequent arrests, shipwrecks, dangerous river crossings, muggings, hunger, thirst, cold, sleepless nights. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content. See, apparently contentment is not something you're born with. It's something you've got to learn. It's something you've got to pursue. It's something you've got to foster. So how did he learn it? Well, I think he would simply say, I learned it when I realized I didn't have the strength to find it. I needed to lean everything on Jesus. And in the context of that, in relationship with him, that's where I discovered the strength to make it no matter what circumstances were unfolding around me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why? Because I'm not alone. And he can foster me. Contentment is something that calls to us and finds its foundation in godly generosity. The scriptures have so much to say about this all over. I just want to look at 1 Timothy tonight. Just this one passage. Look, you brought nothing in, you brought nothing out. Oh, the lights are up. I can see you now. Okay, good. Um, this idea of contentment is so important, friends. And, and so I, I want to give us three things to wrestle with. One to practice, one to kind of think about, 
as we continue on and, and kind of wrestle with this, okay, what does it mean to pursue contentment? How do we find this? Okay, we know it's got to come through the grace of Christ, through his strength. It's not something I can just do on my own. It's not something I was born with, so I've got to pursue it. I've got to go after this. I've got to put some gumption to it. So here's some simple takeaways. Uh, or Proverbs 21, here's another one. Some people are always greedy for more, but the godly love to give. All throughout the scriptures, Psalms, Proverbs, Old Testament, New Testament, you're going to see this phrase, this idea of grow your godly generosity. So here's the first takeaway. You must maintain a manager mindset. Contentment, pursuing after contentment, experiencing a more satisfied life begins with me maintaining a manager mindset, meaning I am not the owner of my stuff. And I don't want my stuff to ever be the owner of me. I'm the manager of the stuff God's allowed me to gain. Now, I know this is where some people push back and they say, well, you know, God wasn't working nine to five on Monday through Friday. I was there. I was clocking time. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, you have the ability to do that, right? Who gave that to you? Because you don't have to have that ability. There are plenty of people in our world who don't have that ability, right? who have had circumstances, situations unfold that they don't have the option of that. And so the simple reason that you even have that is a gift from the giver, from God himself. And so as a manager, I'm beginning to understand that I am not the owner of my house, I'm not the owner of my car, I'm not the owner of all those things, which is really nice and freeing when you realize your car breaks down and you go, God, your car broke down. I don't know if you noticed that but your car's not working. I need help getting it fixed. Hey, your house is needing some work, God. So would you help me and give me wisdom to figure that out? Because this is your washer that's broken. It's not mine. Because I'm a manager. I'm not an owner. I have to maintain that mindset. That How do you go about doing that? Well, I think very elementary. It just begins with realizing you're not the owner of all your stuff. So stop trying to keep it all to yourself. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe as a manager that we begin to say, okay, God, you're the giver of all this stuff. You're the one who's blessed me with all these things, and so I'm gonna choose to honor you first with some of your stuff back. That I'm just gonna make godly generosity a part of what I do. I'm not gonna tip you I'm going to actually set aside a percentage that I'm going to give back to you. I want to honor you because you're the ones who gives this anyway. And so I'm going to choose to do that. I'm going to choose to honor God first and foremost in my life. I'm going to maybe set a little bit away from myself for a rainy day moving forward, and then I'm going to live on the rest. How countercultural is that to our world? That's the opposite we've talked before in the past, we've talked about just finances and all this stuff. What if you gave 10%? What if you saved 10%? What if you lived on 80%? That is so radical. But it's so wise. What if we just actually did it? Why? Because I'm a manager. I'm not the owner. I don't own all this stuff. I'm given a responsibility as a steward to manage it because it's his. And so I want to make sure I do that well. See, as a church, we try to do that. 
we, we set out a budget every year, right? I don't know if you know this or not, but we set out a budget from July through June, and we're coming up halfway, you know, here in December. We're going to start talking about year-end giving and all that stuff and opportunities for that. And here's why we do it. Because we're not going to spend more than we make. What? Fascinating. Yeah. That's how we try to live. And so as a church, we, we say, hey, look, you know, we really could use 5000 to 5500 a week to, like, do everything we do. Like, to pay the people that are on staff, to do all the ministry, to, to move the kingdom forward, to kind of do more missions. We've got lots of dreams and visions, let me tell you. But we're not going to do more than what we can afford. That's the reality. And so as a church, we try to do this. We want to encourage you as individuals to try to do this, to say, hey, we're a manager. And so we have to manage and steward the opportunities and things that we have. So here's the simple question. Have you grown in your generosity? Not just tipping God. God's not your waiter. But as a percentage giver, have you grown in your generosity? Are you more prone to do that now than you were two years ago? We just finished a whole series about discipleship. That is one of the greatest spiritual questions you can ask yourself. Am I better at this today than I was a couple years ago? That's indication of growing as a disciple. Not because you're awesome, but because God's changing your heart and transforming you to want to do that more. Whether that's giving of your time or your talents or your treasures or whatever that may be, are you better at it? Are you more active with that than you were two years ago? It's a great indicator of how you're doing as a disciple of Jesus. Why? We have this joke sometimes with pastors that we love when people say yes to Jesus and they're getting saved, but we always sometimes say that the last thing to get saved is their wallet. Ooh, he said that out loud. Yeah, because the reality is that's most often true. I'll give God my time. I'll give God my talents. But I'm the owner. No, friend. You're a manager. And so that's a wrestling match you've got to have with God. That isn't about me. I don't care. God's going to take care of us. But that's about you. That's about your growth. That's about you becoming a person who can live with more contentment and experience a more satisfied life. And so you must fight to maintain this manager mindset. That's how you begin to move a little closer to contentment. The second one is this intentional downsizing. This is radically different than our culture pushes us. But intentional downsizing. Here's what I started about three years ago. Uh, this was a simple baby step that I took. I love Starbucks, okay? I love my $4 lattes, $5 lattes. But when I was going to Starbucks, here's what I realized. I would get the grande, and then typically it would always have like three or four sips left at the end when it's really cold, and that's just gross, right? And then I started studying more about just how do I honor God with all my stuff, and I was like, you know, just, just get a tall. And I was like, oh, I'm short anyway. I should do that. So for the last two and a half years, I just order a tall. It's about 40 cents cheaper, but it's intentional downsizing. That may seem silly to you, but try it the next time you go to a fast food restaurant and you're tempted to get the large drink, just get the medium. What? 
But the large goes further. Yeah. But this is about intentional downsizing. This is about training your mind and your heart to say, I don't have to have more. More is not always better. And so this is about training that. So here's the challenge I'm going to give you for all of us, okay, including myself, that starting this week, here's the challenge, real simple, intentional downsizing. I'm going to challenge you, myself included, to give away seven items every week between now and the end of the year. You're like, what? What's the math on that? It's 63 items, okay? Because there's nine weeks left. Here's what I mean by that. I bet in your closet you have seven t-shirts that you never wear. Donate them. Just give them away. Let it go. In the the great theological words of Elsa from Frozen, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Good. You're catching on. Okay. Find ways to intentionally downsize. Some of you have CDs sitting around at home. You never play a CD anymore at all. Give it away. Let it go. You don't need to keep them. Some of you have so many pairs of shoes Like if we were invited to your house, you would be like, oh, that's like a whole room. Well, give seven away. It's okay. You can donate them to great agencies around town to make a difference. You got 14 jackets. You live in Tucson. You don't need 14 jackets. Let some go, right? This is about intentional downsizing. I promise you as you pursue that, It will begin to help your heart and train your heart to say, contentment is okay. This is just lightening the load. I don't have to have more. Now, is it wrong to get something new? Not at all. In fact, you can read on in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God says, and command the rich to give and let them enjoy what they have. This isn't about God being like a miser and never wanting you to have anything, okay? But this means you don't have to have 12 of everything. So learn to intentionally downsize. Let things go. Contentment is learned by being content and not just falling victim to the pursuit of consumption or acquiring or chasing after the quest of more and more and more. Think of this as your anti-consumption project. Seven items for the next nine weeks. 63 items total, okay? I don't care if you are so tight on this. If you have two socks, count that as two. Okay? Give yourself grace. It's okay. But learn to let go. Intentional downsides. The last one is this. Help yourself tomorrow by limiting yourself today. I know this is not for everybody. But here's what I know statistically in our country. Eight in ten Americans live paycheck to paycheck. They have no savings or very little to help that. If you are a teenager here, I want you to hear this. This will change your life. Just save up $1,000 and put it in an emergency fund. It's for a rainy day. And guess what? It's going to rain. It's going to rain. Stuff happens. And so when you have a buffer that can help you, then you don't have to go into debt to go pursue things that you really don't actually even need, right? And so 
this is one of the very first baby steps of Financial Peace University. Uh, we're going to launch that again in January. If you're interested in that, that's a nine-week class that can just help you begin to get a grip around how you manage finances and how do you do that from God's perspective and how do you make progress in that because you want that. This is the very first step. Just get $1,000 in an emergency fund. We have one. I have it in a bank where I don't even have a card for it. I literally have to walk into the bank to get money. Why? Because I don't trust myself. Just being real. I don't trust myself. So if I got a card, it's easy to spend. So I put it there, and then when rain happens, then we're able to go get it. And that's how you maintain this buffer. Look, I'm not perfect in any of this. But I'm telling you, this was life-giving just to establish this. And if you're young, this is what I'm telling my kids who's getting ready to graduate from college and high school. I'm telling them, you have to have this. It will save you. It will rescue you. It will help you experience contentment and satisfaction more in life. And so I know sometimes that means I have to say no to things today so I can have a better tomorrow. That's all this is, is beginning to manage that. Now, <clears throat> that's a lot of stuff, and you can look at that and go, oh, I'm overwhelmed, but don't be. What I want for you, what I want for me, is to experience more contentment in life because that flows out of God's grace. And so as we continue on in worship, we're going to have a time of communion here. And this may seem like a weird transition into communion, but here's the truth. We're managers. We're not owners. God gave everything. And no better picture of that than in the sacrifice of Jesus, of his life and his death and his resurrection to say, I'm doing everything I can for you. Everything. I'm giving it all. And so as you take communion tonight, just remember that God's a great God who loves you and wants the best for you, wants you to experience more contentment and more satisfaction in life, but you have to learn to fight for that contentment sometimes, especially in the culture in which we live. We gotta push back against that. So Father, that's what we pray for tonight, that we would be a people who continue to grow as a disciple of Jesus, who want to experience a more satisfied life, and that doesn't come from just getting the gifts. That comes from gaining a relationship with a giver and growing that relationship. So God, thank you for being a giver. Thank you for being at the very core of who you are, the greatest giver ever. Would you allow the grace of that to continually overwhelm us and stir us to want to be a people who grow in our contentment and who grow in our godly generosity toward you and toward this world and toward the people around us. God, we need more people like that. Maybe more than ever. We want to be those kind of people. So would you stir our hearts as we worship you would you show us ways that we can intentionally downsize, ways that we can change our mindset to be a manager, ways that we can say, hey, I want to make some decisions today that will help my tomorrow. Each one of us has a next step, so would you show us what that is? Would you stir us, Holy Spirit, as we worship you, as we lean into the great gift of Jesus? It's in his name we pray.